from Los Angeles, California, the entertainment capital of the world, it's the 80s Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Edward Havens. Thank you for listening today. Welcome to the start of our sixth season of the podcast. This is our first episode of the new year and the first of three new episodes before we go on hiatus in mid-February. Now, normally I don't cover television movies, let alone from across the pond that never seemingly played in American theaters, but I offered a listener freebie to Lee Thompson, one of our most loyal listeners who happens to be in the United Kingdom, and I love discovering films I'd never heard of before. So, for this first episode of 2024, we're going back to 1984 for filmmaker Mick Jackson's first dramatic narrative film called Threads. But as always, before we get to 1984, we need to do some Doctor Who-style bending of time and space because there's some other things to discuss. We're going to start this story in October of 1965. The British Broadcasting Company, the BBC, had commissioned a 45-minute pseudo-documentary called The War Game, which depicted what life might be like in the United Kingdom if a nuclear war broke out. Pulled in the style of a news magazine program with the kind of even-handed narration one would find in a mid-60s British documentary, the movie felt so realistic that it would cause much dismay within the government of British Prime Minister Harold Wilson. And the BBC would be, depending on who you talk to, either forced to or made the decision to delay the airing of the program on BBC One on the evening of 6 October 1965. Of primary concern of the Wilson government was the possibility of mass suicides in the country after its airing. Of course, this only drove the public's desire to see the movie that was causing so much controversy, and the film would eventually be screened for three weeks at the National Film Theatre in London in April and May of 1966. One of the people who would attend one of the screenings was a 23-year-old would-be filmmaker named Mick Jackson, who would travel the 120 miles between the University of Bristol, where he was getting his postgraduate degree in drama, to London to watch it. The war game would screen at a number of film festivals around the world in 1966 and 1967, including the New York Film Festival, the Mannheim-Heidelberg Film Festival in then-West Germany, and the Venice Film Festival, where it would win a special prize. The war game would also win two BAFTA awards, including the United Nations Award, which was given to a film that embodied one or more of the principles of the United Nations Charter, and it would win the 1967 Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature. Now, I need to do a not-so-quick sidetrack. I myself had never heard of the war game until 1993 when I was managing the New Wilshire Theater in Santa Monica, California, for Landmark Theaters. The New Wilshire was one of those grand old theaters from the early 1930s with a huge backstage area that basically sat unused after the theater was converted from live theater to a movie theater in the late 1930s. When I was hired away from the Cineplex Beverly Center in 1993 to manage the New Wilshire, I discovered to my great delight that the backstage area was being used as a de facto storeroom for hundreds of old 35mm prints owned by Landmark Theaters. I was even more excited to learn that I would get a small bonus if I were to not only come up with a better organization and catalog system for the prints, but also inspect and run the prints to see what shape they were in. That was the best part of the job, and it was literally my start as a film historian. 
not only did I have access to prints of some of the best movies of all time, including the full 207-minute version of Akira Kurosawa's Seventh Samurai and George A. Romero's Night of the Living Dead, I could, after hours, watch movies virtually unseen on movie screens in decades, like Monty Hellman's The Shooting and Ride in the Whirlwind, or Federico Fellini's The Clowns. As I was going through the collection print by print, trying to match up what the home office said should be there versus what I had in front of me, I found a three-reel film canister that had a sticker on it that said War Games. Knowing that the 1983 John Batham movie was a six-reel film, I opened the cans up to discover black-and-white film stock on all three reels. And knowing that War Games was filmed and released in color, I pulled the can and took it up the projection booth so I could watch it after work that night. And what I watched was one of the scariest movies I have ever seen. The war game felt so real and brought back memories of nightmares about dying in a nuclear holocaust that I hadn't had since a preteen in the early 1980s. I wanted to learn more about the film, but in 1993, the internet wasn't much of a thing yet, and AOL didn't really have a section on obscure 1960s British docudramas. It would be years before the internet would get to the point of really being an informational superhighway. But now I know quite a bit about its history. I'm glad I watched it. But 30 plus years later, I doubt I'll ever watch it again. After McJackson graduated from the University of Bristol, he would work his way up the filmmaking ladder at the BBC. Until in 1973, he was given the opportunity for his first directing gig. Directing three episodes of The Ascent of Man a 13-part docuseries for the BBC Two commissioned by the legendary Sir David Attenborough, which followed British mathematician and historian of science Jacob Bronowski as he traveled the globe to trace the development of humans and society through an understanding of science. In 1978, Jackson would produce and direct another science-based docuseries, this time for BBC One, called Connections. Written and hosted by British science historian James Burke, it eschewed the popular linear and teleology views of progress through history, instead showing how every major innovative push forward in the modern world was a result of a web of interconnected events with no concept of the final modern result to which the actions of either them or their contemporaries would lead. In one episode, Burke would connect the invention of the movie projector in the late 1800s with the improvement of castle fortifications which happened thanks to the invention of the cannon 600 years earlier. Most of you listeners, however, are likely to know the series' connections from one specific two-and-a-half-minute moment that ends the eighth episode of the series. James Burke talks about the connection between the invention of the thermoflask and the ability to fire rockets into space, which ends with what many call the most perfectly timed shot with the rocket containing the Voyager 1 spacecraft taking off in the background. If you release those two gases into a confined space with a hole at the other end of it and mix them as you do so, and then set light to them, you get that. Destination, the moon or Moscow. The planets or Peking. After several other documentaries and like-minded programs, Jackson would be commissioned in 1983 to make his first dramatic narrative film. Alastair Milne, the director general of the BBC, 
sat down to watch the war game, which, after its limited theatrical release in 1966, had never been seen in any form again in the United Kingdom, still banned by the British government. But being the head of the BBC gets you certain privileges, including your own private print of a banned movie. The Cold War was still in full swing, and the BBC had been slowly pushing the boundaries of how a potential nuclear strike could be portrayed on television. In 1982, a guide to Armageddon, the eighth episode of the first season of the BBC science show QED, broached the subject harder than anything shown on British television since the still-unaired war game. Written, produced, and directed by Mick Jackson, a guide to Armageddon asked what might happen to buildings, cars, and people should a nuclear missile detonate over London. Milne was convinced Jackson was the right person to make a stronger, full-length movie about the topic. Under the working title Beyond Armageddon, Jackson traveled to the U.S. and the U.K. talking to defense specialists, doctors, psychologists, scientists, and strategic experts in order to create the most realistic depiction of nuclear war possible. He would read books by scientists Duncan Campbell and Carl Sagan, and when it was time to collaborate with a writer, Jackson would hire Barry Hines, a British author, playwright, and screenwriter, whose novels and screenplays explored the political and economic struggles of the working class in northern England. Hines had written the book that was the basis for Ken Loesch's breakthrough 1969 film Kez, considered one of the greatest British movies ever made. Hines would team with Loesch three more times over the next decade, and Beyond Armageddon would be his first project since splitting with Loach. Jackson loved the movies Loesch and Hines made together and wanted this film to have a similar socially realistic tone. Hines and Jackson would work on the basic storyline before Hines went off to write the script, while Jackson worked on other parts of pre-production. The pair knew they only had a 250,000-pound budget, so they would be limited to what they could do on screen. Hines decided to set the film in Sheffield, a working-class city in the center of England where Hines had made his home years before, and in the area around South Yorkshire where many of his books, plays, and scripts took place. It also, quote-unquote, helped, for lack of a better word, that Sheffield had multiple Royal Air Force bases nearby and a number of industries that might be an initial target of the Russians should a real nuclear war begin. Jackson would hire a number of local non-actors for the film, which would initially focus on a young couple in Sheffield, Ruth and Jimmy, who are dealing with an unexpected pregnancy, while the threat of nuclear war escalates around the world. Filming on Beyond Armageddon would last for 17 days in early 1984, a few months after ABC TV in the United States aired their similarly-themed, big-budget, star-studded movie The Day After, which showed the after-effects of a nuclear detonation in Lawrence, Kansas. But unlike the day after, the filmmakers here didn't have the budget to shoot any major effects for the film, which, incidentally, worked for the film. Jackson would note to the New Statesman in 2018 that for threads to work, he had to try and let images and emotions happen in the people's minds, or rather, in the extensions of their imaginations. Nuclear skin burns were created with Rice Krispies and gelatin. Wardrobes were purchased from secondhand stores, then burned with blowtorches to simulate having gone through a nuclear attack. And when one character has to give birth alone and bite through the baby's umbilical cord, that was licorice, colored to look like flesh. 
As Jackson put together his cut of the film, he was under scrutiny to make sure he walked a very fine line between pushing the envelope of what could be shown on television and what might push viewers over the edge. When he finally screened his cut of the film for the heads of the network, Jackson did not receive the usual round of congratulatory phone calls he would usually get from friends and colleagues. This worried him greatly until he learned that everyone in the screening room just sat there in stunned silence after the end credits ran. The 112-minute movie would run on BBC Two at 9.30pm on Sunday, 24 September 1984. Nearly one in eight people in the United Kingdom tuned in to watch the movie, making it the highest-viewed program on BBC Two that week. There would be no panic in the days after the broadcast, although there was one gentleman who killed his wife and kids before taking his own life near Sheffield the night the film aired, although it has never become clear if the murder-suicide was connected to the movie or just an unfortunate coincidence of timing. Four months later, Threads would air in the United States on Ted Turner's TBS Superstation, with Turner himself presenting the introduction to the film. Amongst those tuning in to watch the movie in America on January 13, 1985, was, according to some in the know, President Ronald Reagan. The following night, Turner and TBS would present a panel discussion on the horrors of a potential nuclear war. Threads would air around the world throughout 1985 and 1986, most often during the summer of 1985, and tied the 40th anniversary of the nuclear bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. On August 1st, 1985, Threads would air again on British television, this time on BBC One, as part of a week of programming about nuclear war. That series of programming would finally include the first ever airing of the war game on British television, 20 years after it had been made. In 1985, Threads would be nominated for seven BAFTA awards, winning four Best Single Drama, Best Cinematography, Best Production Design, and Best Editing. While Threads would be released on VHS and Betamax tapes in the UK in 1987, it would slowly lose its cachet as being something groundbreaking, especially after the collapse of the Soviet Union a few years later. It wouldn't be released again until a bare-bones DVD was released in 2000, followed by a Blu-ray from Severin Films in 2018, which included a 2K scan of the original broadcast print of the film, with extras including a commentary from director Mick Jackson, cinematographer Andrew Dunn, production designer Christopher Robiland, and actress Karen Meager, who played Ruth. Mick Jackson would continue to work with the BBC for several more years before moving to America to begin working on feature films. His first movie, Chattahoochee, featured Gary Oldman as a Korean War veteran in 1955 Florida, who has a breakdown and is incarcerated at a maximum security mental health prison where the patients are abused. It would be little shock if you've heard of it, let alone seen it. In America, the film barely grossed a quarter million dollars, despite having a cast that included Ned Beatty, Dennis Hopper, Francis McDormand, and Pamela Reed. His next movie would bring him quite a bit of attention. Steve Martin would handpick Jackson to direct L.A. Story, a comedy about a wacky weatherman who, with the help of a sentient freeway traffic condition sign, tries to woo a beautiful English newspaper reporter. Somehow, despite not having been in Los Angeles but for two years, Jackson was able to perfectly capture the vapidity 
and silliness that is ingrained in my city of angels. Opening in early February of 1991, the film would gross nearly $29 million, going against other films like The Silence of the Lambs and Sleeping with the Enemy. His next film would find him in a much better position. Amongst fans of L.A.'s story was Academy Award-winning actor, producer, and director Kevin Costner, who had been trying to get one project made for years. One of the first screenplays written by a young Lawrence Kasdan, who would go on to write or co-write such films as The Empire Strikes Back, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Body Heat, The Big Chill, and The Accidental Tourist. The Bodyguard was originally written in the early 1970s as a movie for Steve McQueen as the bodyguard and Diana Ross as the young singer who falls in love with her protector. But the idea of a white man and a black woman falling in love was still somewhat taboo in America at the time and would be rejected by more than 30 studios and independent production companies. Several years later, Diana Ross tried to get it made again, this time featuring her then-boyfriend Ryan O'Neill as the bodyguard. But the couple would break up a few months later, which would kill the project again. In 1982, Kasdan would direct a little-known Costner as the dead friend whose suicide sets off the events of The Big Chill. Famously, when the film was released, a flashback coda featuring Costner with the other actors had been cut out of the final film. And two years later, Kasdan would make it up to Costner by giving him a leading role in his western Silverado. During the shooting of the film, Kasdan and Costner would strike up a friendship that would lead to Kasdan giving Costner the rights to make the bodyguard. It would take nearly six years to get there, but everything seemed to click once Jackson was hired to direct the film. Costner would pick Whitney Houston, who had never acted before, to play the singer. And it was Jackson who kept encouraging Houston to not act so much as just be herself. The bodyguard would become a smash hit, both on screen and at the record store. The movie would gross more than $120 million, and the soundtrack, led by Miss Houston's rendition of the 1973 Dolly Parton song, I Will Always Love You, would sell more than 45 million copies worldwide. And after that career high, Jackson's filmmaking career came crashing down very quickly. 1984's Clean Slate was a painfully unfunny comedy featuring Dana Carvey as a key witness in a murder case who has been afflicted by a rare case of retrograde amnesia by the guy who was responsible for giving him amnesia. It's like Memento, but told start to finish and less funny. The film would gross less than $7.5 million. 1997's Volcano was one of two volcano-themed movies to come out in the spring of that year, a few months after the Pierce Brosnan movie Dante's Peak. This time, the La Brea Tar Pits becomes an active volcano, and it's up to Tommy Lee Jones to save Los Angeles. The Coast is Toast read the tagline for the teaser posters for Volcano, which would be changed to It's Hotter Than Hell, after Roger Ebert suggested they change the tagline The Volcano is Drano in his review of the film. Volcano would gross $123 million worldwide, which sounds good until you see that it costs $90 million to produce and another $45 million to promote globally. My favorite movie of Jackson's would be his 2002 adaptation of tech writer Poe Brosnan's 1997 novel, The First 20 Million is Always the Hardest. In the film, a group of tech weirdos are assigned a seemingly impossible task of creating a personal computer that could be sold for only $99. In many ways, it's a proto-Silicon Valley, 
more than a decade before Mike Judge would create that show. But the film would be one of many that 20th Century Fox would quietly dump on an unsuspecting world. With the cast included Jake Busey, Enrico Colantoni, Rosario Dawson, and Ethan Supley, the film would open on one screen each in Los Angeles and New York City and place 93rd on the box office charts that week, with only $5,491 in ticket sales. And there wouldn't be no second week for the film. But while his movie studio career was faltering, Jackson would find a second wind on cable television. His 1995 docudrama about the McMartin preschool trial, Indictment, would be nominated for eight Emmy Awards, winning three, including one for Best Made for Television Movie. And Jackson would also win the Director's Guild Award for Best Directorial Achievement in Dramatic Specials. His 1999 adaptation of Mitch Albom's 1997 memoir, Tuesdays with Maury, would feature Jack Lemmon in his final acting role. More than 22.5 million people would watch the movie on ABC, and Jackson would win his second DGA award, this time for Best Directorial Achievement in Movies, for Television, or Miniseries. The film would also win Emmys for Jack Lemmon, Hank Azaria, and for Best Made for Television Movie. His 2002 movie about the 1991 coverage of the impending Gulf War, live from Baghdad, would get lost in the shuffle of the impending Iraq War but was a solid drama featuring exceptional performances from Michael Keaton and Helena Bottom Carter. After The Hades Factor, a disappointing 2006 CBS two-part miniseries about an Ebola breakout in Berlin, Jackson would see his big success on TV with his 2010 biographical drama Temple Grandin, starring Claire Danes as the real-life woman with autism whose innovations revolutionized practices for the humane handling of livestock on cattle ranches and slaughterhouses. Temple Grandin would be one of the best-reviewed made-for-television movies of the 21st century and would receive 15 Emmy nominations. Like with Indictment and Tuesdays with Maury, the movie would win the award for Best Made-for-Television Movie as well as six other Emmys, including Jackson's first and, as of this recording, only Emmy for Best Directing. Also, like Indictment and Tuesdays with Maury, Jackson would win another DGA Award for Best Directorial Achievement in Movies for Television or Miniseries. As of January 2024, Jackson's last movie was the 2016 British film Denial, which was based on the real-life story of an American professor of Holocaust studies who was sued in British courts for libel by a British author who the American labeled as a Holocaust denier in one of her books. Featuring Mark Gaddis, Andrew Scott, Timothy Spall, Rachel Weiss, and the late great Tom Wilkinson, Denial would get nominated for a BAFTA Award for Best British Film, but even with mostly positive reviews from critics around the world, the film couldn't even cover its $10 million budget in ticket sales globally. While I haven't had the chance to watch the film yet, Threads is on my must-watch list and thankfully is currently available to stream on a number of quality streaming services, including the Criterion Channel, Canopy, Mubi, Shudder, and Tubi. Thank you for joining us. We'll talk again in two weeks when I take my first big dive outside of the 80s to talk about H.B. Halicki, the one filmmaker more responsible for my love of movies than any other. You may not know his name, but you probably know his 1974 movie, Gone in 60 Seconds. I'll be talking about that film 
and two films he made in the 80s, The Junk Man and Deadline Auto Theft, and the sequel to Gone in 60 Seconds he was making when an on-set accident took his life in 1989. I hope you'll join us. Remember to visit this episode's page on our website, the80smoviepodcast.com, for extra materials about the movies we covered this episode. The 80s Movie Podcast has been researched, written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens for idiosyncratic entertainment. Thank you again. Good night.